I want to share my opinion with you. I don't normally get to give my opinion. Because when you're teaching the Bible, your goal is to let the Bible say what it says. So you don't get to give your opinion very much. But I want to give my opinion on this. I used to think that the church had a good theology of grace, but a poor application of grace. Okay? In other words, we understood it, we just didn't practice it. I don't think that anymore. I don't think the church has a good definition of grace. You ask a lot of people what grace is, and they, oh, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay, what's that mean? Oh, it's the unmerited favor of God. Okay, good, what does that mean? I don't think we really understand it. And so, I know in my own life, what happened is when I I came to understand the message that we talked about last night, and I came to understand that I had been crucified with Christ, buried and resurrected, and I had a brand new identity. But I didn't understand the grace of God. And so what happened is my bondage went actually higher. Because now I've got a new identity that I'm striving under an economy of ought, should, must, and have to. And so I was even worse off than I was before. Which wasn't fun to begin with. So I, what I did is I went and I did a study, about a two-year study of grace. And um, this is what we're going to share with you tonight, is what I learned and I hope that you'll come to understand grace in a greater way. This is going to be our theme verse. Look at this. Galatians 2.19 For I, through the law, through the instrument of the law, am dead to the law. Isn't that interesting? That I might live unto God. Do you realize what that's saying? If you live in the law, then you're not going to be living unto God. You see that? So we better understand what this whole thing's all about. So we said what we were going to do is do Romans 5.17. So why don't we open our Bibles there once again. And Romans 5.17, we said basically, is redemptive history in one verse. It's the Bible in miniature. We've got the beginning from Adam all the way to the completion in Christ. In Adam, we got death, right? But in Christ, we get to reign in life. Now there was a key verb, and what was it? Tithe, right? Isn't that what we saw last night? Amen. All right. Key verb was receive. A very foreign word. We don't hear that in church very often. We hear do, but we don't hear receive. Receive two things. The gift of righteousness, which is your new identity, and the abundance of grace. Now, we spent all our time last night on the gift of righteousness. And I hope you've all come to understand what the Bible says about you. If you are in Christ, you are righteous, right? That is the gift of God given to you in the person of work of Jesus Christ through the vehicle of faith, right? Okay, tonight we're going to look at the abundance of grace. Now, I think we can find in this that there's an equation then, there's a formula. And I'm not a big formula guy, right? I want to focus more on the person of Christ. But there's a formula there. If you receive your identity and receive the grace of God, you're going to reign in life right now. Isn't that right? But what if you understood your identity, but you don't understand grace? Well, then you're going to still be under bondage, and these are going to be the buzzwords of your life. Anybody familiar with those words? What if you came to understand grace, but you don't understand your identity? Well, then you're going to be living in license. I'm under grace. I'm free. Free. You know, and off you go into all kinds of stuff. 
And then you got the standard evangelical who doesn't understand his identity or grace, and he's empty and driven. <laughs> so we've got to gain understanding into both our identity and the grace of God in order to reign in life, which simply means to be free to be who you are, and who you are is a child of God, either a son or a daughter of the King of Kings, which means you are either a prince or a princess. And that's who you really are, and that's how you want to live. Isn't that cool? So, what is the grace of God? That's what we're going to hopefully come to understand tonight. Let me pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for every man and woman here tonight. As we look at this thing called grace, that maybe we think we know, but maybe we really don't. Uh, we've got definitions, but we don't understand meaning. We need to understand meaning, because we can't apply what we don't understand. So, Father, be the teacher. May your spirit open the eyes of the understanding. May your spirit work through a human vessel as he trusts you by faith. It's about you, not about us. But because it's about you, it's all about us. Did you hear that? It's not about you. It's all about God. But because it's all about God, it's what? All about you. Because he's all about you. Isn't that cool? So, Father, open our eyes to the grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to go back to the Garden of Genesis, the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, we're going to find man in fellowship with God. And basically, God is kind of like a big old faucet. Now, I tried to find a faucet without a handle, but I just can't find one. The reason I want to find a faucet without a handle is because that's the way God is. God loves. God mercies. God graces. God gives life. And he's like a giant faucet with no handle. You can never turn him off. Okay, you can try to walk out from under the faucet, but the faucet's still going to be pouring. Okay, that's the way God is, and He's always seeking to bless. And Adam lived in a relationship of intimacy and dependence upon God. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but Adam was created halfway through the sixth day. So Adam's very first full day of existence is what? Day seven. What's day seven? The day of rest. Question, what did Adam have to do to enjoy all that God had done? Nothing. Nothing. Just receive it. Right? So Adam was made a receiver. So all he had to do to enjoy what God has done is just hold out his hands and say thank you. Now think about this with me. On day eight, he's going out to work. Isn't that right? But does is he working to achieve? No. He already has everything. Then why does he work? Because he's made in the image of God and God works. In Colossians chapter 1, it tells us God is working right now. He is working to sustain and hold all things together. If God decides to take a day off, what? The whole thing blows apart, right? We go back to minuscule dust, right? Everything goes back to that. God is holding all things together. Man made in the image of God works, but he doesn't work to achieve. He works because it's a part of the image of God. It's a part of who he is. That's how God set this thing up. Does everybody understand that so far? By the way, doesn't he just look GQ? <laughs> Everything was rosy cozy in the Garden of Eden. Isn't that right? Black Does he really? <laughs> and Eve wasn't even around yet. <laughs> All right. Now, there was law in the garden. This is one of the questions I ask people all the time. When did the law come in? That people say, Exodus chapter 20, giving in Ten Commandments. No, no, no. No, no, no. There was law in the Garden of Eden. What was that law? It was the law of love. See, God had an intimate relationship with Adam. 
And he loved Adam. And all that he required of Adam was to love God back. Please understand, for there to be this thing called love, there's three things required. There's a lover, right? There's the spirit of love that goes out. There is a beloved who receives the love and then releases the love back to the original beloved. Lover. You with me? So there's a, a, a cycle, a circle of love. So God is the lover. He extends love to Adam and he says to Adam, love me back. And Adam says, okay, whatever the heck that means. God had to put a tree here. For there to be genuine love, there had to be choice. There had to be prohibition. There had to be something that he could say no to so that he could say yes to God. Right? Okay? We have Paul. We have Darlene. When Paul said yes to Darlene, what did he say? He said no to every other woman on the face of the planet. Yes, he did. Right? (laughs) Oh, she wants to testify. And when Darlene said yes to Paul, she said no to every other man on the face of the planet. Listen, there is nothing mystical or magical about this tree. It was the tree of choice. That's all it was. And Adam, in saying no to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would be saying yes to God. Are you with me? So in the Garden of Eden, for Adam, all there was was a who. It was a person. And that was how he lived his life. Isn't that glorious? However, so it was the law of love. Something happened in the Garden of Eden. Tempter came along and he said, In the day that you eat, you'll be like God. And Adam made the choice to choose other than God. And what did he choose? He chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or we could call it the tree of right and wrong. And man became alive to himself. And he became alive to other than God. And whereas before life was a who, life now became a how. Life now became a what. He moved from relationship with God and the provision of God to supremacy of self and his own performance. Are you with me? So life went from, we could do it like a Dr. Seuss book. I tell you life is a who. I thought it was a what. I thought it was a how. It is not a what. It is not a how. It's a who. It's a who. Yahoo. You got it. You with me? See? Let me give it to you for all you nerds. A relationship with God is windows. This is the tree of DOS. Okay? This is simplicity. This is complexity. You see the difference? Now the whole question of man is, do I have what it takes? His question is, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Tell me what not to do and I won't do it. But there's a huge assumption there. What is the huge assumption? That he'll be able to pull it off. Are you with me? And so what we like to call this, uh, you made reference to it today, Ross, is the great gasp. Man had life with God. He lived in a glorious who. And that was all he knew. It was like a fish in the water. All the fish knows is the water. But how many of you ever been fishing? And you take that fish and you pull him out of the water. And what does the fish do? <gasps> See? And then it sits on the land and goes, 
<gasps> right? And this is really the best definition I've ever been able to come up with for the fall. See, we call it the fall. Makes it sound like man tripped. He was trucking along and had a little trip. He didn't want a trip. It was a choice. It was a decision. It was an act of rebellion. It was a declaration of independence. I don't like being dependent on God. I'll be my own God. And what really happened that day was the great gasp. And man has been gasping ever since. But he's gasping in all the wrong places. Trying to satisfy and generate life where there is no life. You with me? Okay. Everybody okay so far? So from the time of Adam to Moses, man had a goal. And what was his goal? I'm going to be like God. That was the temptation, right? So this is the the goal of his life. Who is God? Well, he is holy, perfect, and good. Just like God. You with me? That's his goal from the time of Adam to Moses. That means that every one of us is a God wannabe. Right? Every one of us. I think we ought to run the church like an AA meeting. I really do. How many of you have ever been to AA meetings? Okay. Rest of you don't want to admit it. All right. All right. You go to an AA meeting and this is how you do. Okay. Hello, I'm Frank and I'm an alcoholic. And everybody goes, hello, Frank. And what are we saying? Because we're alcoholics too or we're in this same thing together. I think we'd have a lot better chance of getting people into freedom if we co- uh, confronted the dyma- dynamic central issue that all of us face. Hello, I'm Frank and I'm a recovering God wannabe. Hi, Frank. There you go. Because you're saying the same thing. You with me? Okay. Now, in response to this, this is how man lived from the time of when? Adam up to Moses. In response to this, God says, let me help Adam out. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give the law to show man what it takes to be like God. How do we know that? Romans chapter 7 verse 12 says the law is holy, perfect, and good. What's God? Holy, perfect, and good. So do you see what God did? The law is a reflection of the perfection of God. Let me say that again. The law, all it is, is a reflection of the perfection of God. It was a visible target that Adam could shoot at to try to be like the invisible God. You want to be like me? Let me show you what it means to be like me. And he gave him a tangible target to shoot at. Why? To show him that he could not pull it off. You see, I want you to think with me for just a minute about this thing called the law. All the law is, is love stated negatively. Say, so what do you mean? Well, think about it. If I love you, I won't kill you. If I love you, I won't steal from you. If I love you, I won't commit adultery with you. Well, then why didn't God just say love? Love each other. Think about it. Who are we separated from? God. What is God? Love. You see, he couldn't tell us to love because we don't know what love is. Because we don't know him. Because we're separated from him. So he had to state love in a negative way. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't go here. Don't go there. Cut your hair. You know. And you'll be like me. Okay? Because you'll be loving. So this is what God did. Now I think the main reason that God gave the law was to keep us from a false hope. That we could ever pull off being like God. So for the unbeliever then... 
The law is like looking at a mirror that's calling you to be what you can never be. Don't steal, don't kill, don't covet. In other words, love. And that's the one thing man cannot do. By the way, all of us, Romans 3.20 says, our mouths are shut up under the law. Do you know what that means about us? We're all legalists. Okay? Different degrees, different things that are our laws, but we're all legalists. And any time that you start to talk about God, that legalism is going to kick in until you come to a revelation of Jesus Christ. Malcolm Smith. How many of you ever heard of Malcolm Smith? Good friend of mine. And uh, we were talking one day, and it was so funny. He was telling me about this meeting that he had in New York City. So he's in the middle of New York City, and he's got this meeting going, and he preaches for a couple of days, and they took a break. And Malcolm says, I need a break from people. So he left the meeting, and he went for a walk. And in the walk, he went down the street, and they... Sloops? Stoops? Help me. Stoops? Is that what they call them? Like a porch? Okay. So there's this stoop. I always thought it was short for a dumb person. But anyway... uh, (laughs) Sorry. I didn't mean to look at you. (laughs) He looks surprised. (laughs) Raccoon looking at headlights. Um, So he's on this... He went by this stoop, and there was a, a skid row bum up there. So Malcolm says, I went up and sat down next to the guy. And we started talking. And we had the most wonderful conversation for about 40, 45 minutes. Isn't that cool? And then the bum looked at Malcolm and said, by the way, what do you do for a living? And Malcolm said, I'm a Bible teacher. And the bum said, well, I want you to know I share my whiskey with the other drunks. (laughs) Do do you you see it? Wonderful 40-minute conversation. As soon as the thought turns towards God, I share my whiskey. I do. I perform. I try. We're all a bunch of legalists. And we all need to be born again. Are you all tracking with me so far about how we got into this mess? Alright, here we go. Let's understand then a proper use of the law. Now I need a reader. Who's going to read for us tonight? Okay, Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's in the New Testament, Paul. Okay. I figured. <laughs> Somebody else look up Galatians 3.24. Who's going to do that? Okay, great. Let's start in verse 5, Paul. Alright. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us... Sorry, stop right there. There's nothing in me that's adequate. Nothing in me that's capable. Nothing in me that's okay. If I'm going to become okay... I've got to get my okayness from God. See what he's saying? Now comes in verse 6. He made me okay. So there's the good news. But how did he make me okay? Look at this. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He didn't make me okay through the letter. Through the law. Through the old covenant. Through that which was written on stones. Stones don't give life. Remember the old Genesis. Kind reproduces kind. 
right? Rocks can't produce anything because they're dead. The letter kills. Own that. What does the law always do? Kills. Look at verse 7 and read the first phrase. Now, if the ministry, if the ministry of that, brought death, that brings death. Right, help me out. What does minister mean? To serve. So God says, what's your name? Yes. Terry. Terry. God says, Terry, let me serve you. Let me minister to you. Let me minister to you a little death. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Go to verse 9. Paul, what does he call the first phrase? If the ministry that condemns... Oh, what else does he call the law? A, a ministry of condemnation. So God gave the law, Terry, and he said, I'm going to help you out, son. I'm going to give you the law, and the law is going to kill you and condemn you. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> now, let's think about that. Why would God give a law that kills and condemns? To, show us our need. to kill us and condemn us. <laughs> That's exactly right. Because why? Galatians 3.24 so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. So that the law could lead us to Christ. Now, by the way, there's some translations call that tutor. The law was our tutor. Very bad translation. The Greek word is pedagogos. The pedagogos was not the tutor. Okay? It was not the teacher. The pedagogos was the guy that was hired by the parents to make sure you went to school. Well, he had a little stick. Come on, get to school. Get to school. Get to school. Get the idea? The law is like that. It's a pedagogos. It's a, he's got a little stick in his hand. He's going to beat you and beat you and beat you until he gets you to where you're supposed to be. What's the law? A ministry of? Say it. Death and condemnation. What is the law always going to do every time you try to follow it? Kill and condemn you. So here we have a little visual. Because visuals are so important. Our Father God gave the law to kill and condemn us. Isn't that exciting? Why? What's a dead man need more than anything else? life so that we would cry out help and we'd run to Jesus why is it so important to run to Jesus he is life he's got the market cornered on life John 1 4 5 in him was life and the life was the light of men I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly he who has the son has the life I am the way the truth and the no whoever believes in the father would not perish but have life so God gave the law to kill and condemn you and drive you to Jesus who then would give you life and return you to GQ. Now, I can't do this visually, but I want you to understand something. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden to our second slide. Over here we had the tree of... And over here we had the tree of the... knowledge of good and evil. Do you see what God did? Man chose this. God says, that's okay. I'll use that to drive you to what you should have chose. Do you realize this is the ultimate Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good? God used our sin against us to drive us to what we should have chosen in the first place. Is God cool? Wow! That just blows my mind. Now, the problem is we got some people called Pharisees. Can you all say Pharisees? Pharisees. Yeah. And they came along and they said, hmm... We can get life out of the law. In fact, in the Mishnah, which is the written recordings of the rabbinical writers back at the time of Jesus, in the Mishnah, there is a direct quote, there is life in the law. What does the law always do? Kill and condemn. So they're not listening. 
They think they can get life in the law. Now here's the key. Whatever you look to as the source of your life has to become the supreme issue of your life. If you think money is the source of life, what's going to become the supreme issue in your life? If you think that girl is the most important thing in your life, then what's going to happen? She's going to become the idol. If you think your kids are the source of your life, they're going to become the supreme issue in your life. By nature, that's what has to happen. So they found life in the law. Do you need a savior? No. So what did they do? Killed him. In fact, if you understand John 11 correctly, what actually killed Jesus was job security. The Pharisees got together and said, this guy, people are converting to him and he's doing miracles. If we let him alone, all Israel is going to believe in him and we're going to be out of a job. Isn't that funny? So what was, what it was really killed Jesus was job security. Now here's the key. There's a very important verse in Romans chapter 2. It says, you don't practice what you teach. You who preach don't steal, you steal right here in your heart. You want what other people have. You who preach don't commit adultery, you do it right here in your mind. You're not able to keep your own law. Now if you can't keep your own law, what are you? Guilty. How many people like to live with guilt? So what do you do? You practice Luke 18 and you have other people around you who don't do it as good as you do. This is the Pharisee in Luke 18. You remember the story Jesus told? Two men went up to the temple. One a sinner, one a Pharisee. The sinner pours his heart out. Oh God, I'm so wretched. I'm so miserable. I'm so guilty. Please have mercy and grace upon me. And then he channels over to the Pharisee. Oh God, I thank you. I'm not like that guy. I fast. I tithe. I pray. Whatever one of those begin with? I, I, I. Yeah. And you got to love Jesus' sense of humor. He says, thus he prayed with himself. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And Jesus says, which one went home justified? The sinner. Here's the key, and I want you to hear this. Religious people are the meanest, unloving people on the face of this planet, and they have to be. Because it's competition. So we make these little man-made rules. We're King James only. Why do we do that? So we can look at everybody who doesn't use a King James and we can feel better about ourselves. See? Our women never wear pants. So why? So we can look at those who do and say we're better than they are. Do you see it? And it's ugly. It's ugly, ugly, ugly. I've I, I got to tell you this story. This friend of mine counsels uh, pastors. That's all he does. And he told me this story. He said there was a guy called him up, a pastor, and he says, I need to come see you because I'm struggling. And he told him, well, come on. And he counsels out of his house. So the bell rings on the door. He comes and he opens the door. And the pastor's there. And he looks over my buddy's shoulder and he goes, what is that? And my buddy goes, what? He goes, that. What? That. And he goes, the television? If I knew you had a TV, I never would have come to you for counseling. <laughs> now, by the way, you know what his sin was? He was molesting little boys in his neighborhood. But by God, he didn't own a TV. <laughs> you see how ridiculous that is? It would be almost comical if it weren't so tragic and if it weren't so rampant pointing fingers at everybody else because they're not doing the little rules we're doing, but we're harping on those little rules because we can pull those off and feel better about our sin. i got to tell you a story. 
there was this hippie. Illustrates this perfectly. And he was on a drug and alcohol high. And he passed out in the gutter. And he woke up the next morning. And he puked all over himself. And he's laying there in the gutter. And he's a mess. And there was a gospel tract in the gutter. So he picked up the little gospel tract. And he read about the love of Jesus. And he accepted Jesus Christ right there on the spot. And the Lord saved him. Now the last little phrase on the tract said, Now go join a local church. So he harped on down to the local Baptist church. And uh, I didn't say that. And he got down to the local church and the ushers met him at the door and they said, what are you doing? He said, I'm coming to worship. I just got saved. And they said, not here, you're not. Look at you. God, you stink. He said, oh, okay. This is the house of God, man. You can't come in here like that. Oh, okay. So the hippie went home and he cleaned himself up and he came back to church the next week and the ushers met him at the door. What are you doing? I've come here to worship. I've just been saved. He's not like that. You're not. You've got to cut that beard off. You've got to shave that long hair. Look at those clothes. You've got all these holes and tatters. This is the house of God, man. You can't come in here like that. Oh, okay. So the hippie goes to the thrift store. And he gets himself a three-piece suit. Comes back the next week. I should meet him at the door. What are you doing? Come in here to worship. Just got saved. What's that under your arm? He'd gotten a Bible at the thrift store. He says, that's my Bible. What version? He said, it's a living Bible. Living Bible? This is the house of God, man. You can't come in here like that. So the hippie went out and got himself a 25-pound King Jimmy. And he came back the next week. And the ushers met him at the door. And they said, what are you doing here, son? He said, I've come to worship. He said, look, we've been watching you over the weeks. We thought you got the message by now. You're just a leopard trying to change his spots. This is the house of God, man. You can't come in here. So the hippie went home and he was so upset and he was pouring his heart out to God. He said, God, I've been trying to get into that church. I cut my hair. I shaved my beard. I got a three-piece suit. I got a 25-pound King Jimmy. I'm doing all these things trying to get into that church. And finally, they just won't let me into that church. And just then there was a voice from heaven. It was God. And God said, I know what you mean, son. I've been trying to get into that church myself for 35 years. (laughs) It would be funny if it weren't so true. By the way, doesn't that just look like a lot of preachers you know? Come to Jesus. What a picture. Let's not blame the Jews. We've done the same thing, gang. We looked at the law. The law killed and condemned us. We ran to Jesus. Jesus gave us life. Look at how happy that boy is. And we call that saved by faith. Right? Saved by grace through faith. And instantly, what do we do? Go right back to the law. And we fail to live right here, according to a tremendous verse called Colossians 2.6. As you have received him, so walk in him. How did you receive him? By putting a three-piece suit and a King Jimmy? No, you received him by grace through faith. Did you receive him by tithing? Did you receive him by going to church? None of that stuff. You received him by grace through faith. So how do you walk? By grace through faith. You don't go back under law and start doing all this performing. You walk by grace through faith. See? And, and, but this is what we do. We look at the law and we go right back under it. Now I've got Christians. I travel around the country and I tell people this stuff. And I'll get people that look at me. I kid you not. They'll come up to me and say, well, we don't live by law. We're, we know that. But we live by principles. <laughs> a bunch of horse feathers. <laughs> we have standards in our church. That's law, man. Let me show you this one. See this one? Look at this keyword. Can you all see that in the back? Expectations. That's law. You see, here's what's going to happen to me. 
I will have been gone for four days. I'm going to go home Sunday night. I'm going to get home about 10 o'clock or later. I'm going to be tired. But I've been gone four days. So I have expectations that Janet's going to have the kids in bed. She's going to meet me at the door in a black negligee with a rose in her teeth. <laughs> candles on the table and a little supper snack with a little champagne. Can you drink in this church? Please? Okay. And uh, see, that's my expectation. Now, when she doesn't come through and she shows up at the door in a robe and curlers in her hair, what's, and the kids, yeah, what's the law going to have to do? Going to have to kill and condemn her. See? Here's the problem. What is the law always going to do? Kill and condemn you. What is Jesus always going to do? Give you life. Do you see what's happened to the body of Christ? We become spiritual schizophrenics. I'm saved. I'm a wretch. I'm forgiven. I'm guilty. I'm alive. I'm dead. You see that? And so what's going to happen? Right there, confusion and frustration and emptiness and drivenness. And you're going to walk the aisle and walk the aisle and walk the aisle and rededicate and fail and rededicate and fail and rededicate and fail until you chuck it and say Christianity doesn't work. Boom! Done. I'm a Christian. Bull done. It's in the Bible. You thought I was going to say the S word. I shocked a crowd once. I said that you, I thought you thought I was going to say the S word, and I said it. <laughs> what doesn't work is Galatianism. What doesn't work is mixing law and grace. What doesn't work is rules and the life giver. What works is the life giver only. That's what works. Here we go. Romans 7. Need a reader. We need you to read real loud. And be ready to be interrupted. Okay. <laughs> We've created a monster. <laughs> All right, Romans 7.1. Or do you... Uh-oh. Where did we see that phrase last time? Romans 6. Do you not know? In other words, what? You ought to know this and you don't. That you were crucified with Jesus Christ. Why was that so important? To understand that you no longer have an old nature. Your old nature got crucified. When somebody says to you, I'm struggling with my old nature, they are lying. They are deceived. They're struggling with their flesh. They don't have an old nature. Their old nature was crucified. Paul, that selfish, controlling, manipulating, arrogant, spiteful, manipulative... Do you need me to continue to get the idea? Okay, but that little stinker got nailed to the cross. It doesn't exist anymore. That's the basis for you to live brand new because you are brand new. You are not a sinner. You're a saint who doesn't act like it sometimes. See that? The second reason you need to know that you died is Romans chapter 6. You died to the power of sin. In other words, before you became a believer, you had no choice but to sin. Now, you're under obligation to not sin because sin has no power over you. When you sin now, you chose to do it. Now we get the third reason why we should know that we died. 
Do you not know? Here we go. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. All right. Stop right there. Here's the principle. Now, Paul is a master teacher. When you're a master teacher, the first thing you want to do is teach your principle. What's the principle? The law has authority over a man as long as that man is alive. Okay? Does a dead man have to worry about going 55 on an interstate? He died to it. Does a dead man have to worry about paying his taxes? No. Death ends relationship to the law. That's his principle. You with me? Now, when you're a master teacher and you've taught your principle, what's the next thing you do? You illustrate it. Who said that? You can come to the front row. Bob? (laughs) Again. You illustrate it. Here comes his illustration. Verses 2 and 3. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Okay. Question. Is Paul teaching on marriage and divorce in this passage? No. He's teaching on our relationship to the law. And he's using marriage and remarriage as an illustration. But you go into churches around the country and they will be using that passage to teach on marriage and remarriage. Miss the whole point of the passage. Paul says, the law has authority over man as long as he lives. Let me illustrate it to you. Here's a woman, she's married to a man. If she shacks up with another guy, she's an adulteress. If this old boy dies, she's free from the law of that man and she's free to remarry and not be called an adulteress. Do you see his illustration? Alright, you're a master teacher, you've taught your principle, illustrated your principle, now what do you do? Apply it. You didn't get that one. How come you didn't get that one? You got the illustrate part, but you didn't get the application. So that, oh, <laughs> just like a woman. Okay. Just kidding. Kidding. Alright. Here comes his, his application. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Oh my goodness. One of the most important verses in the New Testament. One of the most important verses in the New Testament. So then, here's my conclusion. You died to the law. When did you die to the law? When you died with Jesus Christ at the cross. So not only did your old man die, not only did you die to the power of sin, you also died to the law. Why? So that now, the verse says, you can be remarried to someone else. Who? Him who was raised from the dead. Why? So that you can now bear fruit in the Christian life. Do you realize what he just said? You follow the law, you don't bear fruit. You will not bear fruit following the law. The only way to bear fruit in the Christian life is to be married to Jesus Christ. Ought to bring in some thoughts like a John 15. Abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Do branches produce fruit? No. Branches bear fruit as they're connected to the vine. But the church doesn't understand this, talks to branches and says, bear fruit, bear fruit. 
Why aren't you bearing fruit? I'll try. And then you come back next week. Did you bear fruit? No. Wicked branch. You see? Stupid. What we should be saying is branch, connect to the vine. Connect to the vine. Connect to the vine. And the fruit comes naturally. So I and you are no longer under the law. Because we died to it. Now my wife hates when I do this. And she said, do you have to do that? And I said, yes, baby. (laughs) I really do. I've got to make sure people understand what I'm saying. I'm free to steal. I'm not under the law. I'm free to kill. Not under the law. This is the part she hates. I'm free to commit adultery. Am I not? Yes. Four times in the New Testament there is this phrase. All things are lawful. That was apparently the theme of the church of Corinth. I think the church at Corinth was the most grace understood church in the New Testament. No other church said that. Corinth did. But what did Corinth do? (laughs) They went into license. So Paul had to add to that passage. Notice I didn't say correct it. All things are lawful, but all things are not profitable. Frank, you're free to steal. You're also free to go to jail. (laughs) Frank, you're free to kill and get executed. You're free to commit adultery and lose your family and, and your kids and your wife. See? So that's really stupid. With me? Everybody okay so far? Okay. Why do we not want to follow the law? Here we go. Okay. I need you to look up some verses. One is Romans 7, 6 through 9. Who's going to do that one? Okay, Bob. Romans 7, 6 through 9. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six. Okay, Jacqueline. Right? And then one more, Romans five twenty. You got that one? Okay. Alright, here we go. Let's start with first Corinthians fifteen fifty six. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Did you hear that last phrase? The strength of sin is the law. Where does sin get its power? From the law. So if a pastor Preaches on the law. What's he going to be doing? Strengthening sin in the church. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't go here. Don't go there. Cut your hair. Wear your pants. Don't you know whatever. Now, that's better. Don't wear your pants. <laughs> don't be too critical here. Tough crowd, Ross. Tough crowd. They're a little too free for me. <laughs> Alright. But here's the key. What kind of sin are you going to get in the church? Are you going to get the rampant adultery and the pornography and the drunkenness? No. But what you're going to get is self-righteousness, judgmental spirits, critical attitudes, gossip and slander. You're going to get some ugly, ugly stuff. And the church is going to be a mean, unloving place that's full of competition. With me? Let's go to Romans. So let me give you a visual right there. See, what happens is there's nothing wrong with the law. How do we know that? Romans 7.12 says, 
Law is holy, perfect, and good. The problem is there's this thing called the power of sin. And it uses the law. Notice we have two separate lines. Why do we have two separate lines? Because we want to show there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is the power of sin. And it uses the law to stir up sin. Romans 7. Listen to this passage. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. So there it says it again. We've, been, we've died to the law. We're not under the law anymore. So that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Keep going. Uh, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is there something wrong with the law? May it never be. Heaven forbid. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So what is one of the things the law does? Shows us what sin is. So that we won't sin. Okay, keep going though. Watch this. For I would not have, been, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, Produced in me coveting of every kind. Okay. Paul kept the law very well. But if you look at the first nine, they're not too hard to deal with. Don't kill people. <laughs> right? Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. You can pretty much pull off those first nine. The tenth one kills everybody. You know what the tenth one is? Don't even want to do the first nine. See? That's the one we can You ever wanted to wring somebody's neck? <laughs> Am I alone in that? (laughs) It's confession time. (laughs) All right. You don't even want to steal. You don't even want to commit adultery. You don't. You never put anybody before God. Come on, that's gotcha. Okay. But sin produces in me all manner of coveting. This is why all diets fail. You ever thought about that? I'm not going to eat the cookie. I'm not going to eat the cookie. I'm not going to eat the cookie. What are you going to do? No, you're not. You're going to eat half the bag. <laughs> because the law, the power of sin is going to produce all manner of the... Don't touch that wall. Don't touch that wall, cause You have not thought about touching that wall this whole night. And now what? You can't wait to touch it. See? This is, this is the way the thing works. One more verse. And this, to me, is one of the most neglected verses in the entire Bible. Who's reading this? Romans 5. Before you read it, I want to ask you a question. How many of you are parents? Got parents? Your kids are running through the house. And you say, what? Stop running in the house. Now, when you say stop running in the house, what is your intended goal? That they will stop running. This isn't a hard class, is it? When you make a command, what? You're expecting it to be obeyed. When our country made a law and says don't, don't kill, what's their intention? To stop killing. Look at this verse. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. Uh-oh. Did you see that? That's far enough. <laughs> God gave the law for the express purpose of seeing it broken all the more. When did you ever hear that taught in church? God gave the law so that sin would increase. Why would God do that? I think so we'd get sick of following the law and ask God, is there a better way? I am trying as hard as I can to keep this thing and no matter how hard I try, I keep breaking it. God, is there an alternative method, a plan B? 
see? And there is. And it's Romans 8. Let's go there. Somebody read verse 3. Go ahead. The law could not be weak as it was through the flesh. Okay. Is there anything wrong with the law? Where's the problem? The flesh. You can't keep it. (laughs) That's the problem. By the way, it's a reflection of the perfection of God, so who alone can keep the law? God, which was Jesus Christ. Right? So. For the law could not be weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that... So that. Now that's a very key word. This happened in verse 3 so that verse 4 can happen. You with me? So verse 3, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh so that... What's the end result? Here it comes. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Whoa, wait a minute. The whole person and work of Jesus Christ is so what? The righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in me. I thought we just said we were free from the law. A visual to help us. I have died to the law. Law shma. Right? Right? We don't care. That all happened so I could be married to Jesus. But in being married to Jesus, he does what only he can do, which is express the righteousness of the law through me, because all the law is is a reflection of the perfection of God. So what kind of life does Jesus live? A life that fulfills the righteousness of the law. So people will come up to me and say, Frank, you're a religious man, aren't you? Oh, no. I hate religion. Well, Frank, you follow the Ten Commandments. No, I don't. Well, do you steal? No. Do you kill? No. Do you commit adultery? Heaven forbid. Well, then you're following the Ten Commandments. No, I'm not. What you see is the life of Jesus Christ being lived on this planet just like it was being lived 2,000 years ago in a different body as I trust Him by faith. That's what's happening. Got nothing to do with the law. Now, by the way, I no longer have to compete with these people. See? I don't, what's your name, sweetheart? Terry's wife. What? Tina. Tina. See, in the old days, I might come up to you and go, Tina, have you read your Bible? Now, why am I asking you? Because I read mine. <laughs> you think I'm going to ask you if I haven't read mine? See? Why am I doing that? I'm better than Tina. See, and this is what goes on in church. Have you had your quiet time today? See, and it's stupid. Now, what if Tina happened to read her Bible? She's the idea. Well, how long? <laughs> and, and this is the way it works. And it's a spirit of competition. And it's mean and it's ugly. But now we're in a totally different economy where the badge I wear is not that I read my Bible today. The badge I wear is not that I practice baptism by immersion. The badge I wear is not a King James Version of the Bible, though if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. You you understand? The badge I wear is Jesus. What's the badge Tina wears? Jesus. Well, then what happened to our competition? It's gone. And so Tina 
practices baptism by sprinkling. I practice baptism by immersion. Who cares? She'll learn when we get to heaven that she was wrong. You know, but it's, it's okay. You know? I don't have to divide from her and separate from her and go form my own little denomination now. I can still love her even though she's wrong because if she's good enough for Jesus, she's good enough for me. You see how it works? Isn't that cool? God, if we could just get this issue straightened out, we could turn the church back into a loving, accepting place that it was intended to be. Instead of this mean-spirited, selfish, self-exalting, hypocritical, competitive, yuck, that it is. You know? People don't rebel against God. They don't. They rebel against the church and what the church has become. My, I got a friend named Juan Carlos Ortiz. Have any of you ever heard Juan Carlos? Juan Carlos is from Argentina and he has a very broken, broken English. I, I like to kid him because he sounds like, like Dracula. You know? <laughs> so he'll, he'll go to me and say, Pastor Frank, let's have a theological discussion. You know, and he's like that. It's really hilarious. But he tells the story of, of Romans 7. And the first thing, the first time he ever came to the States, you know, he had this huge ministry in Argentina. And the first time he ever came to the States, the great anticipation, big church. And now we have Juan Carlos Ortiz, first time in America. And he took the pulpit and he looked out among the body of Christ and he was very quiet and he stared them down. And there were chuckles and laughters and then he stared them down. And pretty soon it got very intense and very quiet. And he said, today you have all been found out. 95% of you are committing adultery. And can you imagine if somebody really was? <laughs> you, know? you are married to Jesus. And you are having an affair with Mr. Law. That's spiritual adultery. Stop it. Well, he tells the story of Romans 7, that we've died to the law. And this is how he does it. He goes, Oh, look at that poor, poor woman down there. She is married to Mr. Law. He treats her so poorly. He points out everything she does wrong. He never lifts a finger to help her. He's Mr. Perfect himself. Oh, he is so mean to her. If I were married to her, I would never treat her like that. I would love her. I would give her everything she needs. But she's married to him. Poor woman. Wait. I have an idea. I can't kill him because he's perfect. I will kill her. This marriage will be over. And then I will resurrect her. And I will marry her and be everything to her. Get it? That's the gospel. Why don't we know this? Why don't we know this? Do you not know? This is supposed to be the ABCs of Christianity that we're not under the law. Wow. So let's meddle. For the believer, the law mirrors your true identity and calls you to be who you are. Are there commands in the New Testament? You better believe there are. Don't steal, don't kill, don't lie. They're all over the place. But I want you to start to look at the commandments differently. I want you to see them as issues of identity. Terry, don't steal. Why? You're not a thief. See, don't lie. Why? You're not a liar. Don't commit adultery. Why? You're not an adulterer. 
good child of God. Start to look at them instead of commandments as statements of identity. And by the way, this is very important for how you shepherd your children. See, the world, when a little kid lies, what will the world say? You're a liar. What did you just do? Gave them an identity. What are they going to do? They're going to be what they are. They're going to lie. I'm a liar. I may as well lie. We don't do that in the body of Christ. My child lies. What do I do? Excuse me. Who are you? I'm a child of God. Yeah. What are you doing lying? You're acting contrary to who you are. So I'm going to help you know who you are. Whack. (laughs) See? So I discipline according to identity. See? That's how we do it in the body of Christ. The second thing I want you to see is that these commandments aren't really commandments. They're promises. They're promises that God will be all that he said he will be. He will never cause you, cause you to do, he never cause you to be something that he himself does not provide the dynamic to pull it off. So see them as promises. I will not be lying because Jesus will be expressing himself through me. I will not be committing adultery because Jesus will be expressing himself through me. See that? Besides, the other reason I won't be committing adultery, let me tell you this. This was funny. I shared this with you today. There's three pastors of big churches in Baton Rouge that have all committed adultery in the last couple of years. And so I get off the plane in Atlanta, and this guy goes, Smith? He sends me a text. It's like, Smith, Jones, Thomas. Friedman? With a question mark. He says, if you do, I'll kill you. (laughs) I'm good friends. (laughs) Laugh out loud. (laughs) So let's meddle. Who do you have under the law, Christian? First of all, you got God under law? You have expectations of Him? When He doesn't meet the expectations, you hold Him hostage? Get mad at Him? Most of us have God under the law. You know who else we have under the law? Ourself. How do you know you have yourself under the law? The buzzwords. I ought, I should, I must, I have to. Are you familiar with those words? They don't belong in your vocabulary. I want to. That's your new word. I want to. My want to's have been changed. My heart's been changed. How about your spouse? Okay, let's continue. And uh, <laughs> let me give you a test. You really want to know whether or not you have somebody under the law? Go to the four or five people closest to you. Say it to them. I want you to speak freely. Tell the truth. Are you able to relax around me and let your hair down? Or when you're around me, do you have to guard your words and actions? That's going to be a pretty good indicator of whether or not you're a practicer of grace. Because if you're not a practicer of grace, people are going to be guarded around you. It's a good word. Well, Father, I pray that we've come to understand grace a little better. I would define grace as being delivered from an economy of achieving for myself to be placed into an economy of receiving from you, God, all that you are to whatever I need at the moment of faith. That's a good definition of grace. Being delivered from an economy of performing and earning for myself and instead being placed into an economy of receiving from you, O God, All that you are to whatever I need at the moment of faith. Grace. Father, may we all know and live in grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take a short break and then we'll tackle number four.